Last summer, uh, I went on a one-night backpacking trip with my pastor, whose name is Aaron Reck, R-O-E-C-K, which is very confusing when I send texts out um, or see Facebook posts. And I'm like, when did my dad, why is he talking about his kid's birthday? Anyways, Aaron and I, not my dad, my pastor, went on an overnight backpacking trip. Um, And so the night before, we get together and we kind of figure out all the gear we need. Like, what do we need to cook? What, do, like, what shelters do we have? Do we have enough sleeping bags? All that stuff. And I'd mapped out the trip ahead of time and it was only supposed to be like a four kilometer hike, pretty short, only like an hour, hour and a half maybe um, of hills to hike through to get to our campsite. And so we were like, let's bring some extra stuff to you know, make the trip a little bit more fun. Let's do steaks, on the, on, let's do steaks for dinner. Um, and so, you know, man, steaks taste really good on a cast iron pan. So I'll throw a full cast iron pan in my backpack. Uh, I was trying to hammock camp for the first time, but I'd never done it before. I was kind of nervous. So I was like, I'll just take an extra tent with me just in case something goes wrong and there's not enough trees there or something. And so anyways, we end up loading up. The backpack was so heavy. <laughs> uh, I, I, this should have been a little bit of a four boating sign for me. I didn't clue in. When I picked up the backpack that night to just kind of test the weight, the strap ripped off of it. And I kind of was like MacGyvered it back together and was like, ah, it's just 4K. I'll be able to do it. Um, so we drive up, we get to the campsite, I pull out the map and I realize that I don't know how, I still don't know how I did this. I, I misread the map and it wasn't four kilometers, like 12. Uh, so like three times as long, got like 40 extra pounds in my backpack or something. My backpack straps ripped, so it's digging into my shoulder. It's 30 degrees out, 190% humidity. It's terrible. And so we get to this site after like six or seven hours of just terrible, brutal hiking um, and uh, get there and we immediately set up camp and I took a nap for like two or three hours. I was exhausted. Then we have our steaks. We get, make the most out of that cast iron pan that I lugged all the way up the hills. Go to sleep, slept very well because I was so tired and I get up the next morning and I'm just like dreading the hike back, like there, there's a definitely way more uphill on the way back, by the way. Um, I'm, I wake up feeling pretty good, but my back's sore, my legs are tired. Um, so anyways, we start out, we start hiking. It's twice as hot and twice as humid the next day, of course. And we're hiking, back's getting sorer. As our back pain increased, our conversation and moods decreased and the last hour or so of the hike, we didn't talk about anything else other than, man, I cannot wait to get to the car and blast the air conditioning and have an actual backrest and go to McDonald's and get dollar drinks. The car is going to be so good. I can't wait for air conditioning. I'm going to crank that thing. And so that was the only thing we talked about. We had this laser focus. I, didn't, I wasn't looking at trees. I wasn't looking at deer running by. I was focused completely and totally on an air-conditioned vehicle waiting for us in the parking lot. That is the kind of focus, that laser focus is the kind of focus that the book of Jude calls us to have on the Lord despite the difficulty and trials that the world brings us. The book of Jude is written in a context where There's false teachers coming into the church and leading people astray, teaching people false doctrine. 
There's people coming into the church, kind of uh, hanging around the life of the church. Maybe they show up on Sunday mornings, but they're, they're called scoffers. They divide and they, they kind of uh, mix up people in the church, cause conflict. They're following their own ungodly passions, it says. There's all these different things that the church needs to be wary of. And yet at the very end of his letter, he doesn't say, okay, here's all the things that you can do to defend yourselves against it. He just says, look to the Lord, look to the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. And so would you read with me the book of Jude, starting in verse one, noticing the laser focus on the Lord at the very end, despite the difficulty. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds and fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The tone that this letter ends with, those last two verses, I find very jarring because of how hopeful they are in light of the kind of doom and gloom that leads up to it. These false teachers coming into the church, leading people astray, lying to people and causing them to fall away from the church. There's these people he calls scoffers that come in, they're following their own ungodly passions and yet they divide and destroy There's all this stuff that the church needs to be aware of that Jude finds so crucial and urgent to write to them, to warn them about. And yet he ends with talking about the glory and majesty and dominion and authority of the Lord. He turns our attention to the Lord. He turns our attention to hope. And so here's the big idea. Keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. Look with me at verse 24. Now to him who is able. God is able. He is able. And what is he able to do? What does it say he's able to do? It says he's able to keep you from stumbling. Let's let's be clear. We don't want to soften the term here. Stumbling means to sin. It means to miss the mark, to fall short of the glory of God, to do what we want to do instead of what God desires we would do. He's talking about sin. And so the Lord is able to keep us from falling into sin. What this doesn't mean though, is that when we're saved, all of a sudden we stop sinning. It becomes a thing of the past. That's not true. We all sin, no matter if we've been Christians for 90 years or nine seconds. We lose our tempers and we yell at our kids and our spouses. We cut corners at work, stealing from our bosses. We, there's a whole plethora of things that we do. We all sin all the time in ways that we, you know, choose to do willingly and in ways that we are unaware of. And so it begs the question, if I sin, but God's able to keep me from sinning, how do how do I reconcile these things? It seems like, These are two opposite things fighting against one another. Well, you have to notice the long-term eternal perspective of this doxology. This is about what God can do now and what he will do forever, before all time and now and forever. And so when you read in this verse 24, to keep you from stumbling, he's not saying that God is able to keep you from ever doing anything sinful. He's talking about an ultimate sense that God is able to keep you from permanently falling away from the faith. 
If you are a Christian, a genuine Christian, you will persevere in your faith until you die or the Lord comes home to bring you home. And this word to keep also means to guard or to protect. And so if you're kept by the Lord, you're also protected by him. You're guarded by him. John 10, 29 says that no one is able to snatch us from the father's hand. No one, not you, not me, not the world. No one is able to snatch us from the father's hand because he is greater and stronger than anyone and anything that exists. And he's able to keep us from stumbling. This idea of keeping comes up several times throughout the letter. Jude introduces the letter to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17 or verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And now here, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Are these ideas of keeping ourselves in the love of God and and God keeping us, are they, again, are they contradictory? No. It's a two-way street. We keep ourselves in his love and he keeps us from sin. However, ultimately, we as the church will obey this call because our glorious God enables us to do it. So take courage, comfort in this. This is, this is good news. Your faith is not dependent on your willpower. It's not dependent on how good you are at being a Christian. It's not dependent on how determined you are to not sin. It's not determined on how far back your last sin was. It is dependent solely and fully on God who will keep you from stumbling. And that is an absolute guarantee. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's also able to sanctify. Where do we get that? In the second half of verse 24, he writes, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We'll be presented blameless. And yet we talked about, we still sin. We sin all the time. So what, how do we get from here, a Christian who sins, to here, Christian presented blameless before the presence of the Lord? Well, the answer is sanctification. Sanctification is, is, is this refining process where the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our lives and weeds out sin, burns off the sin in our lives and makes us more like Christ. Oftentimes it's a kind of a slow process where it's just slow and gradual and day by day we become more and more like Jesus. And uh, sometimes, you know, it looks like God just ripping open your life and, and, and causing you to just see this blind spot that you weren't aware of before. Christians in the room, think back to sins that you struggled with a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. Do you still, does that sin still have the same power over your life? Chances are, if you've actually been struggling, if you've actually been praying and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life, then no. 
it probably doesn't have the same power over your life. You're not perfect yet, but we're better than we were before. We look more like Christ than yesterday. And if you are, praise God, he's able to sanctify you. That is proof of what Jude talks about here. It gives us hope that we will be presented blameless someday. Just because you're a Christian doesn't make you sinless, but it should make you sin less. You know, for for others of you, and, and I admit this is often the case in my life, talk about sanctification can kind of be discouraging. It can kind of be a bummer where you're like, well, to be honest, I feel like I'm worse off than I was last year. I feel like sin is more present in my life than it was last year. I thought I dealt with this a decade ago and now it's back worse than ever. It it just becomes this kind of overwhelming and discouraging thing where you feel like you're just moving backwards and you try and you pray. Maybe you vow to yourself that you won't fall for that temptation any longer, but it just isn't working. Sanctification to you, maybe it seems like a, a gift, an awesome thing that's happening in someone else's life, but maybe it's just not for me. You know, maybe you're even doubting if you're truly saved. After all, shouldn't I be getting better, not worse? Brothers and sisters, the, the process of sanctification is not linear. It's not this smooth sailing journey where, you know, I, I dealt with five sins five years ago and now I deal with four and in five years I should deal with maybe two. It's not predictable. It's, it's up and down. It's a lot of three steps forward and two steps back. It's, it's up and down. And if you happen to be in a place in your life right now where sin is more present in your life than it was a year ago, I would just say that that's not abnormal. That can be a normal part of the Christian life. What I would say though, is that don't give up, keep praying, keep fighting, keep confessing your sins to one another and to the Lord. Ask him. God is still sanctifying you, even if it might not necessarily feel like it right now. Keep fighting and keep your eyes fixed on the God now and forever, looking forward to the day when he will present you blameless in his presence. Something that should be encouraging to you if you're in this place right now is that you're actually struggling that, that's, that in and of itself is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. If you feel convicted by this sin, if you know it's wrong and you need to get it out, you have, feel this need to get it out of your life. Something that is way more concerning, way more dangerous and should scare you way more is if you know it's in there, if you know you have sin in your life and you don't care at all. Apathy is, is a far more dangerous place to be. But that struggle isn't out of the norm. It's a normal part of the Christian life in the here and now. So listen to what Paul, a Christian that we should all look up to says in Romans 7, 18 and 19. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul, just just like the rest of us, struggled with sin. His sanctification journey would probably not look very different than any of ours. And so if you're feeling discouraged about your spiritual growth, I would just encourage you to just redouble your efforts and fight in the fight. Keep on praying. Prioritize your Bible reading, your prayer life. Bring other people into your life who you can be brutally honest with and who will be brutally honest with you. I find this verse tremendously convicting and encouraging. It's James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Keep on fighting. Don't take your eyes off the God of now and forever who loves you, who's able to sanctify you. And someday he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And that will be a day of great, great joy. God is able to keep us and sanctify us. And he will, and he is keeping you from stumbling. Christian, that day when we stand before the presence of the Lord, when he presents us blameless to himself, that will be such an overwhelmingly joyful moment for us, but infinitely more joyful for the Lord. It will be the moment when he finally has finished his divine plan of redemption that he set in motion thousands of years ago for the people that he wept for and bled and died and rose again for. His people will be with him. No stain or sliver of sin will be separating us from his presence. It will be the day when we are with him. One day you will stand in the presence of an infinitely glorious infinitely holy and infinitely majestic Lord. If you are a Christian, that will be a day of incredible joy. If you're not, it will be a day of judgment, terror, But regardless, you will see his glory, his majesty, his dominion, and his authority over all things. Christian, think about it. When, when, when we are in his presence, the, the joy that we experience will be so inexplicable, so indescribable, so overwhelming that no other thought will be able to enter our minds other than the just utter, complete joy that comes from being in the presence of our Savior. It will be, and our joy will be exponentially overshadowed by the joy that the Lord has from being with his child, his son and daughter. What great joy in that moment. In that moment, we'll have the fullest understanding that he is matchless. He is matchless. There is nothing like our God. There is no one that compares to him. There is nothing that compares to him.
His holiness is incomprehensible. His beauty is indescribable. His glory is overwhelming. There's a reason why Moses was just able to look at the kind of passing by tassel of the Lord's cloak as he walked by in Exodus 33, because his glory is so overwhelming that Moses would have died if he faced it face to face. There is nothing and no one like our God. He is matchless. And in that moment, we will know more about him than ever before. Look at verse 25. To the only God. Why is he matchless? He is matchless because he is the only God. Like I just said, there is nothing and no one like him. There's a reason why all these analogies that we try to come up with to describe the Trinity really fall short, maybe fall into a bit of heresy. He's not like an egg where there's like a shell and a white and a yolk. He's not like that because those are three separate substances, but he is three in one, one substance. He's not like water where sometimes it's gas, sometimes it's liquid, sometimes it's solid because he is all three persons at one time. He's not like a three-leaf clover because those are three separate leaves and he is completely and totally one. You know, there is, there is nothing and no one like our God. You know, do you know who God is like? He's like God. There is nothing like him. We can't really fully grasp what it means to be the Lord. He is the only God. Reading on. It says, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He alone is matchless because he alone is our Savior and our Lord, a God that magnificent and matchless, by the way, cares enough about you to save you from death. Like, have, you, have you stopped recently, if you've been a Christian for a long time, Maybe it's old news to you, but have you stopped and recently thought about how absurd that is that the God of the universe who has all dominion and authority, who has all the glory and majesty cares about you? Cares enough about you to give his only son to die a terribly gory death to save you from your sin? Like parents in the room, would you give up your child to save the life of an ant? No, no, that's, that's a stupid question. Of course not. Your child is worth infinitely more than an ant. And there is a, there's a big difference between, you know, a human and an ant, but there is an infinitely greater distance, infinitely greater difference between us and the Lord because he is infinite and we are finite. And yet a God that infinite, that finite, that glorious cares about you, individual sitting in that chair right now. And he loves you. He gave up his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He died a terrible death and he raised and ascended to heaven for you. Not because, not because you're special by the way, but because he is awesome and he is glorious. And through this, 
He displays the riches of his mercy and grace to all of creation. Our lives are an example, uh, a sort of testimony to the grace and majesty of the Lord. And as our Lord, we get to follow him. He's not only our savior, he is our Lord. We get to follow him in his will for our lives. His, his death and resurrection has given us purpose and direction. We get to do what he tells us to, and we have the absolute privilege of submitting to his leadership as our Lord. He is matchless because he's our savior and Lord. Moving on, it says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty. He's matchless because he's glorious. We cannot add to his glory. The songs we sang this morning were singing things that are already true about him. It didn't add to more glory on top of it, what he already has. He already has all of it. By the way, when we chase glory, we're chasing after something that we can never attain because it is already all the Lord's. And so when you chase after that next promotion at work or that next thing that you think will make you feel full, that will raise your status, you're chasing something that will not leave you anything but feeling empty because the Lord already has all glory and majesty. John Piper said this about the glory of God. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. He's also said this, the vindication of God's glory is the ground of our salvation and the exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. The glory of God, in other words, is is who he is publicly displayed to all creation. And our goal, our, our, our kind of purpose distilled, the meaning of life If you've asked that question before, the meaning of life, what is it? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is what we exist for, to ascribe all glory, all majesty to him because that's who he is and what he deserves. Next, he's matchless because he is sovereign. It says, be glory, majesty, but it also says, be dominion and authority. These two words uh, carry a lot of baggage with them, dominion and authority. If you've lived on the planet long enough, you've probably been the victim or you've been on the receiving end of poor leadership of, of authority that's been abused. You know, the word dominion, we kind of maybe associate that with domination. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of, of, of abused and, and misused leader, leadership. You've been left with deep wounds. You probably find it difficult to trust people in leadership. And if you're really, really, really honest, maybe even God. But the Bible frames authority in a much different light. Authority when used properly under the delegation of God, it's a very good thing. There's tons of examples in the Bible of good authority, like godly parents discipling their children and godly elders leading their church in a way that honors the Lord, which you are blessed to have here at Harvest Windsor. But there's 
the, the best human authority we can have, there is no better authority to be under than the Lord. As we've been talking about, he's glorious. He's our savior and we can trust him completely with everything because he's in control. He will never abuse his authority. He will never abuse his dominion. Really, if you've, if you've been the victim of poor leadership and you've suffered because of it, you should want nothing more than to be under the safety of the authority of God. There is no better place to be. There is no one better to serve and to follow and to submit to. We're far worse at leading ourselves even than the Lord. We, we kind of want this, like, I want to be the boss of my own life. I, I know it's best for me. People that end up with themselves as the final authority in their lives always end up as disasters. Just look around at the world. We are way better off with God in charge than ourselves. And so as believers, we can ascribe not only all glory and majesty to him, but also all dominion and authority. Because we trust with full confidence that he will lead us for our own good in his glory. He is the ultimate authority over all heaven and earth. Before all time and now and forever. Revelation calls him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Everything is under his dominion. There is no better king and Lord to follow than our God. Finally, the end of verse 25 says, before all time and now and forever. Finally, he's matchless because he's eternal. He has always existed. Notice that triad of past, present, and future before all time, now and forever. This means that all of God, all of who God is as the only God, the only savior and Lord, the most glorious, most majestic, most sovereign God, all of those things have always been true. They are true now and they will always be true and they will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's matchless because he's eternal. He he has always existed. He never began. All of us in this room have had a beginning. We all have a birthday some recent, some a long time ago. Companies, right, you know, established in, fill in the blank on their doors. The world has a beginning. Everything we know began at some point in time, and yet the Lord did not. He never began. He has always been. Revelation 1.8 says, God says this about himself, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. He is matchless because he is eternal. And so, so what's the application in all this? What do, how do we put all this kind of theology together? Is it so that we can spout off cool, you know, theological facts to our friends? No, it's, is it to win at theological debates? No. Is it so we can feel really good about how much Bible we know? No. Theology should always, 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 always drive you to fall on your knees and worship the Lord. 
It's the only to-do list. Item I have for you today is to keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever in every moment, in every area of your life. When life is difficult, keep your eyes fixed on him. When life is easy and it's easy to forget, keep your eyes fixed on him. When you're tired or angry or discouraged or rejoicing, keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever. Because when we turn our gaze up from the daily grind of life, we get something that we can find nowhere else. Hope. God's matchless eternality is precisely why we can put all of our hope and trust in him. If he has been good to every single one of his children throughout all of human history, he will continue to be so for the rest of time. You know, this, this, this idea of keeping your eyes fixed on the Lord is what the Bible often refers to as beholding. There's lots and lots and lots of good verses about beholding the glory of God. So uh, it maybe it might be a difficult thing to define, but gentlemen, if, you, if you've ever been in love, if you're, if you're married or uh, if you're dating a girl right now, if you even had a crush on a girl, think back to the early days of your relationship when you first meet her and the butterflies are kind of fluttering in your gut every time you see her. Do you just like, does she walk by and you just kind of like look at her? No, you, you behold her. You drink in how, how gorgeous she is, how she makes you feel, how she makes you want to skip work all day and hang out only with her, how she laughs at your terrible jokes, how she likes you despite the acne on your face. Beholding is, is about experiencing and being with someone who changes something inside of you. And so, When we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, we behold him in all his glory, all his majesty. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalm 17, 15, I'll turn there just briefly. Talks about beholding the Lord. He writes, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When we behold the glory of God, when we keep our eyes fixed on him, he satisfies us despite the difficulty and trial that the world will bring, despite the pain that life causes despite the people that hurt us and hate us, despite the devil trying to tear us down. We look to the Lord and we are satisfied. And that doesn't mean that the rest of what's going on in our lives doesn't matter anymore or that it means less. Romans 8, 18 says that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So keep your eyes fixed on the God of now and forever, looking forward to the day when we behold his face in righteousness. The reason 
this letter ends by turning our attention to the Lord is so important. All these warnings that we have, it paints the Christian life as a, a dangerous and a difficult one. And it is. It's inherently not easy. There's a reason why Jesus says to take up your cross and follow me. There will be people who try to lead you astray. There will be people who hate you for what you believe. There's nothing that's easy about the Christian life, but we end in doxology, in worship, to turn our attention to the God of now and forever who will keep us from stumbling, who will present us blameless before his presence with great joy. And to that God, we say, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let it be so. He is the God of now and forever who has called us to himself, who loves us and who is keeping us for Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that amazing day of unexplainable, incomprehensible joy when we are in his presence. To conclude, with our eyes fixed on the God of now and forever, here is what Revelation says we have to look forward to. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. I love this part. They will see his face His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever.